listeners my name is rob and i'm here virtually alongside my co-hosts noah hello and em hi the regular cast of fax machine a podcast by and for people who are curious about everything but especially the things that make them laugh and today i am very pleased to welcome our special guest moya mcteer hello yay welcome thank you so good to be here moya is an astrophysicist and folklorist and Moya, we're really excited to have you join the podcast um Tell us a little bit about what it's like to be an astrophysicist and a folklorist. I think that's a, you have a unique perspective. <laughs> yeah, probably. I'm the only one I've ever met. Uh, it basically <laughs> means that I read a lot of fantasy and I don't consume much science fiction because so much of it is space-based that it feels like work uh, when I watch uh, it. Okay, too close to home. <laughs> too close. And too, like too so, far from so home, really. much of it is bad. Um, so yeah. That's that's what it means. So are you like the worst person to go to Star Wars with? Oh, absolutely. When, <laughs> um, like, like a few months after Gravity came out or like when it came out on DVD, I watched it with my college roommate's family and they still call it the movie that Moya ruined. And they won't <laughs> they won't put on sci fi when I go to their house anymore. Really? You ruined it and not Sandra Bullock? <laughs> Fair, <laughs> fair. I was I was merely the conduit through which the the ruinous language was translated to her family. <laughs> ruinous language. That's like I feel like that's like when you curse someone or put a hex on them. Yeah, <laughs> so appropriate. For I think this that's episode. foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> foreshadowing a dramatic device when an important plot point is mentioned early in the story to be returned to in a more significant way. <laughs> First uh. fact of the episode. <laughs> First vocab word. This is yeah. This is a great educational podcast. Way to go, guys! <laughs> uh, and speaking of podcasts, Moya, I wanted to bring up that you are the host of Exolore, uh, which was was a live show, uh, mm-hmm. storytelling, planet building show, and is now available in podcast form. Yes, um, it is. Yeah, in every episode, I invite three guests to help me imagine what the life and culture might be like on a different alien planet each time. Uh, we just covered a planet that has an eccentric orbit. We've also done a super volcanically active world. Um, and there are so many types of planets that I can't imagine running out of episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, it's such an interesting listen, because when you, when you at the surface think of, oh, a volcanic planet, like you, you have a picture and most people I think move on, but the depth that you guys get into describing the culture, like what kind of language habits they have, like the, what kind of architecture their underground tunnel systems are. It's like really awesome how much detail you put into making this world real. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, so much of it comes from the guests. Noah was a guest on my Asteroid Impacts World episode, <laughs> uh, where we created a, a race of mole people. It was, yeah, it was awesome. They were like. Yeah, mole <laughs> slash beetle people. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. That had uh, it was the, the ritual t- uh, scarification tattoos so they could rub up against each other and communicate yeah. what their tattoos were was my favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> I liked the, the underground organs that they oh, would yeah. carve out of the rock. Yes. That of all fun. their tunnels, it was like a giant earth organ. Mm-hmm. Wow. Good times. 
That's super cool. So definitely when you're done listening to the Fax Machine today, go on over to Exolore and, and send some listens their way. Thank you. I'd appreciate it. Okay. So um, today we're not talking about faraway worlds, though, but we are talking about what may seem like an alien landscape here on Earth. Um, <laughs> as the summer months roll in, we wanted to celebrate a country synonymous with summer, Iceland. <laughs> <laughs> So each of Noah M and Moya will bring you one incredibly Icelandic fact, and I'll finish things up with a pub-style trivia quiz loosely inspired by the theme. And so with no further ado, let's get things started with Noah. This week I learned that one in ten Icelanders will write a book, which is pretty, pretty impressive. Um, <laughs> Damn. There's, there's actually a saying in Iceland, and uh, I'm going to do it in my best Icelandic accent. Adganga medbaki maganam. Which supposedly means everyone gives birth to a book. Um, and it's really interesting, actually, because it's, it's literally translated as everyone has a book in their stomach, which so basically means everyone is pregnant with a book. I, I, I associate much more strongly with the second than the first, because I definitely feel like the beginnings of a book is in my stomach, but I'm never giving birth to one. Like, <laughs> oh, you meant like that you could come out with one, not that you like some people say things like, oh, I devour reading material. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's where I thought you were going, Rob. I can picture after reading like a lot of books, like after you're very full of food, you're going to have a food baby. It's like, oh man, I just like tore through War and Peace. I have such a book baby right now. Oh, that's, oh, that's what you get if you, if you want to write like a recipe book, like a cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. A food comma. <laughs> but uh, so I read this really interesting article on BBC.com about this, and some of the quotes from it are just amazing. Like when novelist uh, Kristen Eiriksdottir was asked whether it gets competitive with all the other authors that are on the island, um, to which she replied, yes, especially as I live with my mother and partner, who are also full-time writers. <laughs> um, <laughs> Wow. But it's okay, though, because she goes on to say, we try to publish in alternate years so we do not compete too much. I'm glad they thought it out. <laughs> I mean, that's how, yeah. I mean, right. it's like they, they schedule them, so it's okay. Another great quote from the same article, this time from Agla Magnus Dottir, uh, quote, writers are respected here. They live well. Some even get a salary, <laughs> which is nice. Uh, and then also, quote, they write everything, modern sagas, poetry, children's books, literary and erotic fiction. But the biggest boom is crime writing. And I'm not sure if I should be surprised by that, given that Iceland has one of the lowest violent crime rates of any country. And it mm. makes me think, like, maybe they're missing something. Like, they need to fill that hole somehow. With their um, imaginations. Exactly. Mm. Um, but without a doubt, more murders take place each year on the pages of Icelandic novels than on the pavement of Icelandic streets, which is wow. probably how it should be. Um, but there's, there's another great quote in this article I want to tell you. Um, this is from Sylvi Björn Sigurdsson. Uh, who goes on to put Iceland's literary culture in the context of its history. And he said, We are a nation of storytellers. When it was dark and cold, we had nothing else to do. Thanks to the poetic Eddas and medieval sagas, we have always been surrounded by stories. After independence from Denmark in 1944, literature helped define our identity. Uh, which I think is a, is a cool concept, this society that defines itself by the stories it can tell from its ancient past all the way to today. And I think, particularly, I, I was got really interested in this mention of their long history of storytelling, and I think it's worth exploring a little bit. According to the medieval Icelandic sagas, which are prose stories and histories mainly from Iceland, but also from some other Nordic countries, Iceland was settled by Nordic explorers around 870 CE. 
they may not have even been the first Europeans to reach Iceland, which I was surprised to find out, um, as there are a few lines of evidence that suggest that there are actually some Gaelic Christian monks um, that reached Iceland over a hundred years earlier. So that would be in like the mid 700s. And one medieval history of Iceland said that the first Norse settlers of Iceland even met some of the monks themselves. Um, although frankly, it is a little bit unclear and there's a lot of debate about that. Um, but these, you know, Vikings, Norsemen, whatever you want to call them, uh, didn't actually stop at Iceland and their stories don't either. According to the sagas, the Icelanders reached Greenland in the 980s and kept going and reached Newfoundland and set up uh, what is widely acknowledged as the first European settlement in North America. Um, and that would have been, I think, just a few years later, so still in the 980s. Um, and they certainly, in both places, interacted with the indigenous people present there. Um, for example, the Beatuk, and then the people known as the Proto-Inuits. Um, and this is the part I'm most interested in, because we not only have the Icelandic sagas account of the contact between the indigenous people and the Nordic people, we also have stories passed down by the indigenous Greenlanders about their interactions. And it's so fascinating, because... Like, from both sources, there are stories of the conflict that you might expect. But there are also stories about everybody just kind of hanging out peacefully from, like, both groups. And two particular ones that I really like that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to briefly describe to you. Um, the climax of those stories is usually some Norseman does something really dumb, like goofing around, and then usually dies. And then everybody on both sides is just like, okay, whatever, bro. (laughs) And then that's like the end of the story. (laughs) And so the first one is actually the story of the first meeting of the Kaladlit, which is the local indigenous people that was like telling the story. And the Kavd Dlunait, which is the word for Nordic settlers, which has survived today. Um, this is from the uh, Kaladlit perspective. Basically, they were just kind of going up the coast and saw this like settlement of people. And it was the first time they'd noticed that these Norse people were there. And so they came up to this large house. They did, they were a little like, uh, who are these people? This is a little concerning, as you can imagine. Um, but according to this story, the Norsemen were just like, oh, hey, come on in. Like, and they became friends. Um, it says treated them kindly and civilly. Later on in the summer, many more uh, of the Kaladlit arrived and the foreigners began to learn their language. There was one Norse person and one local person who became, quote, such fast friends that they would not be separated, but were constantly together. They tried to excel each other at different games and feats of dexterity, and their countrymen on both sides were greatly diverted as lookers-on. Both being first-rate archers, their arrows always fell side by side. And you're just like, oh, this is a cute story of friendship. But then comes this just ridiculous turn, because one day, (laughs) the Viking one is like, okay, we're going to have an archery competition. We're going to put a little, like, uh, target really, really far away. We're both going to climb up, (laughs) quote, yon lofty hill, um, and... (laughs) We will both try to shoot at it and see which one of us can hit the mark. Then this quote. This is, again, from the Viking. To his best friend, (laughs) out of nowhere. A friendship which was described hundreds and hundreds of years later as being really tight. Um, He who fails shall be thrown down the precipice and the other remain the conquerer. Which is problematic. Um, But the... (laughs) The Kalalik answered, no, I will not agree to that because we are friends and none of us shall perish. But, they, but then the Viking, it says the Viking persisted so long, his own countrymen said, well, let him be thrown down as it is his own will. <laughs> and, and then finally, they, everybody was like, just do it. Just humor him. <laughs> so they go up. The, the Viking guy completely misses the mark. And his friend, the indigenous person, nails it like bullseye. And then the, the other guy is hurled down the precipice, quote, according to his own desire. And there's, there's no reason for this to happen. Wow. 
absolutely none. And so everybody from both sides walks away from that, just like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, everything was so chill, and they were, <laughs> they were having such a good time. And the second one is, I'll, I'll promise you, is much shorter, but it basically works along the same lines. And it's uh, a kayaker from Arpat Civic came rowing up the Firth, trying his new bird javelin as he went along on approach to this town that was mentioned earlier. Um, he saw one of the people who lived there gathering shells on the beach. And presently, the, the Viking guy called out to the guy in the kayak. He said, let us see whether you can't hit me with thy lance. The kayaker would not comply, although the other continued asking him. At last, however, the master of the place. So again, this is the, like the Viking chief in that area or like whatever, mayor, I don't know, um, made his appearance and said, since he seems so very anxious about it, take good aim at him. And soon the kayaker sent his spear in good earnest and killed him on the spot. The chief did not reproach him, but only said, it certainly is no fault of yours since you had only done as you were bidden. And that's just the end of that story. <laughs> Wow. So there's a, I mean, it's just like, there's incredible collections of these stories. And it's like, this is so, so long ago. I find it incredible that like fully 500 years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue or whatever, there were Europeans living alongside as well as in conflict with native people on this side of the world. It's so crazy to me that this narrative of Columbus discovering the, you know, quote unquote, new world, even just for the Europeans, since the Icelanders didn't just show up and go away. Actually, the latest radiocarbon dating for the remains of the settlements from Greenland, particularly, is from as late as 1445. Mm. So there were citizens of either at different times, the Kingdom of Norway or of the Kingdom of Denmark. You know, the ones in continental Europe. <laughs> and and they were sending back, like, tons and tons of supplies, like pelts and a lot of ivory and stuff like that. So it's not like these places weren't in contact with Europeans. Um, and it's just, I mean, I don't know. I just It's just nuts to me that either nobody in Southern Europe was aware that Northern Europeans had been living on Greenland or North America for half a millennium before Columbus sailed, or that that knowledge of their knowledge had been lost to history or suppressed or whatever. Anyway, my favorite thing about my birthday being on May 20th, it's that it's the day Columbus died. So that's positive. Um, nice. Anyway. That's so shady. <laughs> so moving from that, I just felt like that was really interesting, especially stories we could get from both the subjects of those. And it, it reminded I was reading about Iceland, obviously, this week. Um, and I just like saw one thing about the national anthem that was composed by like a famous composer in 1874. And yeah. it was like, he wrote in 1874, quote, to mark the 1000 year anniversary of the first settlement. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. okay. And then I had to stop and be like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Which is, and like, like you said, there's probably even earlier settlements that are just like not considered like foundational to like modern Iceland. But that's like 874 was when they're like, we definitely had a town here now. Yeah. Like that's like at least the same lineage of people. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy. But I, I want to sort of jump forward in the history of Icelandic literature um, to first the 20th century and then the 21st century, and that's where we'll end. Um, and basically, so Icelandic literature developed in, you know, throughout history and really came into its stride, especially like before and after uh, World War II, um, which some would say the greatest Icelandic writer was Haldor Laxness, uh, who won the 1955 Nobel Prize in Literature uh, and authored many articles, essays, poems, short stories, and novels. But then today, this sort of like modern culture of, of reading and writing books in Iceland has this fascinating cultural aspect to it. And it's that it's mainly around something in Iceland called the Jólabókaflöd, um, 
which is the Yule book <laughs> flood, a literal <laughs> flood nice. of books that comes around Christmas time. And yeah. the the idea behind it is that I mean, first of all, you got to understand that ninety three percent of Icelanders read at least one book a year. It's one of I think it's the third most literate country in the world, so they already like books a lot. And as I've already said, one in ten people will publish a book in their lifetime. But one of the most interesting things about this like Christmas book tradition is that it's completely normal to receive as many as ten books under a Christmas tree that are like your presents, and that after they've opened all the presents, just goes and starts reading their books, and they just read for like the whole night. And it is so attractive to me, the idea that just like, this is the day where hundreds of books are released. There's a catalog from which you can pick every single year, hundreds of new books. I think, I think it was in like 800 or something like that. Um, people choose like the books they think would be most appreciated by their loved ones. Um, and then they just have <laughs> like a giant reading festival, the whole family, maybe like silently, but yet totally in community with each other. Um, and I just mm-hmm. thought that was really beautiful. And I really like the idea of a society that is um, so focused on books That's or awesome. stories in general. But I usually try to end on something a little funnier, but I was so <laughs> touched by that that I just wanted to share that thought with you. So Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like their boxing day is their booking day. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Books, booksing day. It's got to be their biggest book baby of the year. <laughs> right after Christmas. I really, I like the idea of living in that society. And I really, I'm very proud that today we have someone who's actually contributing to making our society a little bit more like that. Because Moya, in fact, has written a book. And if I'm not mistaken, is in the process of writing another one. And I, before you tell us about it, I want to say that I'm in the process of reading your book, Lying Hordes. Oh, I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Why? It's so good so far. Oh, thanks. Yeah, uh, I've been afraid to look at it in the four years since I worked on it. Well, I I can understand that, but I'm enjoying it, so don't worry. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks. So why did, yeah, you have, I think there's an interesting story about uh, why you wrote this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I studied both astrophysics and folklore and mythology in college, and I was the only person uh, in Harvard's history to ever do so, because when you study two fields, you have to write a thesis that sits at the intersection of your two fields. Um, And everyone before me thought that you couldn't possibly combine astrophysics and folk and myth, and I came along and was like, no, watch me do it. I'm going to write a science fiction novel that's set on a planet that I'm going to study. Uh, All of the science or like as much of the science as can be accurate will be accurate. And the plot of the novel was based on ethnographic research that I did in Hawaii about the Hawaiian sovereignty movement and the 30 meter telescope conflict. Um, That was my undergrad thesis. That is so cool. And I can confirm it is a very cool read so far. Uh, I'm sure that it will continue to be good. I just want to say I've not completed it, but I'm, as soon as we're done here, I'm going to get back to it. <laughs> Noah's going to make like Christmas and just read for the rest of the day. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Make like Christmas. I like That's, that. This is my Yola Book of Flood. <laughs> this week, I learned that by law, babies born in Iceland cannot be named Cleopatra, Zelda, or Lucifer. <laughs> So those are all names that were recently reviewed and rejected by the Icelandic Naming Committee, which ensures that names chosen by soon-to-be Icelandic parents adhere to Iceland's naming traditions. 
So I heard about this because every year there's always some buzz about the names that got rejected. Um, there's this online newsletter called the Reykjavik Grapevine, which is all in English. Um, and it's like a tourism magazine for Iceland. And it's just a delight. Um, but they kind of give sort of annual rundowns of the names that got in and the names that got the boot. So to kind of talk a little bit first about traditional Icelandic names. So they're often hundreds of years old um, and date back to the sagas that Noah mentioned in his previous segment. Um, and they also actually have meanings. So they'll comprise many parts of speech, including nouns, verbs, and adjectives, um, and sort of describe things that evoke winter or nature, like geological features, um, like volcanoes and geysers, and even tap into folklore and religion. Um, so some example translations of Icelandic names, and they are just beautiful like prepare yourselves rock of thor which okay that one's kind of badass but still beautiful uh gift of the sun ocean wave snowdrift glacier folded wings violet which i realize is also a name in english but trust me it's much prettier in icelandic is it <laughs> i think so <laughs> though also from reading and hearing it spoken from an icelander and then being like i cannot do this justice so i will be reading translations for my fact, um, but encourage everyone to look up the actual Icelandic words because they're gorgeous. But traditionally, uh, so first names are chosen from, uh, often from elder family members actually, so like grandparents, um, but surnames um, indicate uh, sort of direct family lineage. So they'll kind of have uh, the suffix at the end that is either patronymic or matronymic, though more commonly patronymic. So, Can I um, interject just to say that yeah. so uh, also along with the sagas, there's the Eddas, or like it's mm. poetry, and it's thought that one of the thoughts about where the name Edda comes from for this like genre um, is that it means grandmother. Mm. And it, ah. it's sort of unclear. I looked into this. It was a little unclear exactly how that, what like what exactly how it got that name, but it's really interesting that those stories, uh, maybe it's from like your grandmother. That are passed you down, or exactly. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, but you just said like, names can sometimes come from elder family members and that made me think of that yeah oh that's so cool um but yeah so when you see in general um like scandinavian last names that end in sun um those are basically a construction of whoever person it is their father's name plus son to indicate that the person is the son of their father um or uh on the matronymic side uh the equivalent is dotir is like the end um but in terms of first names, you can get a bit more creative, um, or at least they don't kind of fall into that very uh, sort of typical construction. Um, oh, I also want to mention before I get into the committee, um, I read about an ancient naming tradition, um, which is basically uh, sort of like an old wives tale, but apparently in Icelandic culture, um, there's an old tradition to name your kid after someone who appears like in their mother's dream while she's pregnant with them. Um, and this is done to prevent harm like to the child by not honoring that dream visitor, especially if they're deceased. Better safe than sorry. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I also read that and was like, but what if it's like an ex-boyfriend? <laughs> oh, no, I really like to name the kid like Chuck. It's like, didn't you date a Chuck? Nope, nope, totally not. Wow. Nope. Like, <laughs> just no, I, no I, ghost, I ghosted him or he ghosted me. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. Um, but if you want to give your kid a first name that doesn't already exist in Icelandic and you're an Icelander, um, then you've got to submit that name to the naming committee. So it's composed of three Icelandic uh, scholars and they're composed of like linguists, historians, grammarians, and they'll pour over their own language and over historical records to basically deem whether this newly submitted name um, meets a few criteria. Uh, so one of them is that they only use letters in the Icelandic alphabet 
and that they adhere to Icelandic grammar conventions. Makes sense. Um, they should also show some degree of historical or cultural precedence. And also reasonably and importantly, they shouldn't bring any harm or like difficulty to the child's life by their imposition. And one of the names I mentioned pretty clearly breaks that third rule. Um, so all told, uh, about half to two thirds of names are approved that are submitted each year to the naming committee um, and then added to their register of approved names. So right now there's about 2000 names each in the girls and boys category. Um, so some sample names, for... that's it. Yeah. Oh my. There aren't that many of them though. There's 400,000 yeah. <laughs> of them. There's 2000 names each. That means uh, there's like each name gets used a thousand times. Well, I'll say too, yeah, they also but... achieve more variety by like like very, very common names. People will usually have a middle name. They also use equally with their first name as well to kind of differentiate, you know, folks mm-hmm. from each other when they have the same first name. That's so much work. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just want to say <laughs> since 1880, there have been almost 300,000 boys named Noah. So that's an entire an island. Island <laughs> uh, and it's an island. It's like an arkful. It's an arkful of Noah's. <laughs> two by two. All of us are related. There you go. <laughs> so some examples of approved names in 2019 um, are Ray, Damien, and Mickey with two Ks. So they are names that are kind of familiar in other languages, but as long as they can be adaptable to Icelandic, then they can pass muster. Um, so, so Mickey was fine. <laughs> Oh, Mickey, you are fine. <laughs> you are fine. Hey, Mickey. <laughs> Blowing minds, man. Blowing minds. Okay, please continue. <laughs> but regarding uh, some of the names that I cited in my fact, um, so Lucifer was cut partly because the letter C doesn't actually exist in Icelandic, so that's a no-no right there. Seems like and also, it's kind of a mean name. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's... Probably for the kids, but best for the kid. Good thing there was a reason for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then Zelda was found to lack historical precedence because it is just a legend. Bear in mind. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And also, uh, the letter Z has not been used in Icelandic for the past couple of decades. So I like how they have kind of like a very like linguistic formal answer and then just like, also, no. (laughs) Um, I have to say I'm I'm not comfortable with that degree of power <clears throat> belonging in any any like body of people. It's not even mm-hmm. I wouldn't even say that's the most famous version of that because I I would say probably the most well-known version of that kind of like language police is the Academy Fran- a- a- Academy Francais mm. or whatever. Yeah. Um the, the French Academy, fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. They, uh, but they're also known as the Eternals and I think uh. there's yeah, and so basically they they're one of the reasons that they're like the French language is like sort of so slow to adopt a lot of new terms because they want to protect it from mostly like English and English's predominance in a lot of like tech terms mm. that like that are really relevant to today. We are going to jump into that so hard. You teed me <laughs> up. I'm knocking it off the tee. Um, so that kind of brings me to why this is a thing in Iceland. So Icelandic names are preserved to kind of like maintain Icelandic heritage, um, sort of in a form of what's called linguistic purism, which as a term, I was like, eh, that doesn't sound great. <laughs> um, but it essentially just means that uh, it's kind of like protecting a language um, from foreign loan words, uh, or also like adopting sounds from different languages. So the kind of base of this, as you mentioned, Noah, Iceland was ruled by Denmark, slash like the succession of kingdoms that eventually became Denmark um, from the 13th to early 20th centuries. 
and this idea of linguistic purism emerged in the 19th century during the Icelandic independence movement. So to establish a free and sovereign Iceland, scholars at the time argued that it was necessary not only to shirk the rule of their Danish colonizers, but also all traces of their influence on Icelandic culture, including its language. Mm. This is common in, like, folkloristically, this is common in a lot of oppressed, like, uh, communities where um, to fight oppression, you hold on to your folklore and, like, whatever will cement your identity as a group. Oh. Yeah. But yeah, so after Iceland gained its full independence from Denmark in the 40s, um, linguistic purism was first encouraged and practiced uh, at universities, actually, and then over time extended to the government, the media, and larger Icelandic society. Um, and this idea of preserving the Icelandic language as kind of this bastion um, of sort of national heritage and sovereignty is still pervasive, but it's also increasingly difficult to achieve, as you can imagine, um, globalism is a thing. The internet is the thing. There's a lot of instances in our daily lives where we are encountering lots of other cultures and languages, and it's great, but for this particular instance, can pose a challenge. Um, but one way of sort of preserving Icelandic language then, besides outlawing non-Icelandic names, is coining new Icelandic words to describe new and or foreign concepts. So this is the job of Iceland's language planning department, and it's perhaps a more important job now than ever because Icelandic, as a language, is actually at risk for extinction. Wow. So, yeah. So one reason for this is that Iceland is relatively small. As we've established, it's 360k, is where we left off? Yeah, so, roughly. Pretty small. So not many people in the world are speaking Icelandic. Um, and that also means that it's at greater risk for a phenomenon referred to by linguists as digital death. So this is the phenomenon of languages falling into disuse and then subsequently erasure over time because they're not useful online. They're not used digitally. So linguists estimate there are about 7,000 languages at risk of this. Um, and kind of the manifestation of this is just think of the languages that you see when you're faced with technology, like subtitle options, speech recognition languages, Wikipedia article translations, um, even of the most common voice assistants, so your Siri, Alexa, Google, Cortana, they're all collectively only <clears throat> duovingentilingual, which means they can speak 22 languages. And this was linguistic, <laughs> so I felt I should learn a new word. So there you go. <laughs> oh, well done. But yes. But yeah, so if language is currency, wow. then some are being devalued in our digital age. It is interesting, though, because I feel like QWERTY does kind of sound like one of the Icelandic names. I can know a committee who might not agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> But so into this situation, facing this digital death, enters the language planning department. So they're manned by a similar crew, and actually in some of the articles I read, like some of the same folks, like actual individuals, um, as the naming committee, um, but they have a different mission, um, which is to coin Icelandic words for foreign concepts, although nowadays often or just new technologies. Um, so some kind of older examples of words that they've helped figure out uh, were basically the Icelandic word for television, which is a compound of Icelandic for vision and throw, um, and computer, which is a compound from the Icelandic words for number and seer. And then more recent, um, they've been involved in coining Icelandic words for political correctness, um, for mansplaining, which I really enjoy because in their version, they swap man for the Icelandic word for ram. And I just feel like that connotes a really appropriate <laughs> mental image of like mansplaining or someone's just like shoving their viewpoint like into your face, correcting you when they have no reason to be. But it's not just technology and punditry that the language planning department has to contend with. Um, they're also involved in coining medical and science terms, new foods, new fads, like just 
everything that you emerge and see trending on Instagram or TikTok or whatever people are on now, all of that falls under their purview <laughs> to translate to Icelandic. Um, but anyways. I have a question. Yeah. Did, did you happen upon the Icelandic word for cronut? Cronut <laughs> <laughs> Cr- could actually no. be a word. I think there's definitely no, there's a, a C. Viking. There's a C. I guess if you replace it with a K, it could be okay. Mm. Well, I was because there's a Viking <laughs> king named Canute, which is, has a lot of the letters already mm. there. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. maybe like with a K. C N U T. It's just tough. It's, uh, it was like because yeah. you imagine how, how long it mm. took the French word police to decide on croissant, and then I bet <laughs> they haven't even accepted cronut yet over in France. So. And then all the spellings of donut. I mean, come on, it's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess. Truth. Yeah. Well, I'd be down to submit that and see what they say. <laughs> But anyways, all of this is to say that for all the jokes that it elicits every year, the naming committee is a piece of a much larger effort to apply creativity and science and history and scholarship to save a language from extinction, and that's cool. And especially for a language that has a word for, specifically, the time of day when there is just enough light to see your sheep. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta preserve that. (laughs) It's so funny. There is, I remember something I saw in like the sagas was they were talking about how like a newly discovered, it was either Iceland or Greenland. They were saying it was, it was, I think it was Iceland. It was so dark for so long in the winter, but in the summer it got bright enough that you could pick lice off of your shirt. And that was the phrase. <laughs> like it was bright enough that you could see the lice and you could get them. And I just, it's like off the wool, presumably, which okay. is the part I guess connects it to sheep. I would say that's, that's brighter than seeing the sheep. I think I like that we're getting kind of gradients of light intensity here. Um, Actually, I just realized I had one last thing that I wanted to mention. I'll sneak it in. Um, Mm -hmm. So one concern that I had, at least like with the idea of a naming committee, is how it could limit individuality in the way of gender identity. So like Mm -hmm. nouns and names in Icelandic are gendered, um, as are, you know, those matronymic and patronymic suffixes that I mentioned at the end of surnames. Um, But this is really cool, although admittedly Iceland has the distinction of having had the first democratically elected woman president and also the first openly gay prime minister. So I guess I'm not too surprised that they are awesome and ahead of the curve. But apparently in 2019, uh, the naming laws changed to eliminate gender restrictions. Um, So any name can be used for anyone of any gender um, and permit non-binary citizens to use a different suffix, ber, um, in their surname to replace son or dotir. So ber translates to child of. So it is the gender neutral form of that suffix. So I thought that was really neat. I wonder if I wonder if that's just becoming like more and more. So everyone's going to be Burr at the end. Yeah, that'd be neat. And then they can wrap that bit of Hamilton. Just like (laughs) surname (laughs) Burr, sir. (laughs) And now we're on to our third fact. Moya, what do you have for us? Oh, I have some very exciting stuff about the Icelandic Phallological Museum, uh, commonly referred to as the Iceland Penis Museum, the only one in the world. Uh, And I I (laughs) learned a lot more about this room in the Icelandic Penis Museum that is entirely dedicated to folklore penises. Uh, So so penises or... This must be a... How big is this museum? It's it's so many rooms. It's surprisingly big. There's like... There's like a very long main room where they have a bunch of their bigger artifacts, like the the whale penises, uh, and then there there are a couple offshoot rooms, uh, and one of these offshoot rooms is dedicated to folklore penises, where they have uh, full penises, but they also have like penis bones. Um, 
it's really exciting. I'm imagining this is like American Museum of Natural History with like the big blue whale hanging from the <laughs> ceiling, but instead it's like a big <laughs> ceiling with like a whale penis hanging from <laughs> Which, <laughs> it's almost as big, yeah. <laughs> they have, they have just, huge penises. I just love the idea that there's a whole room for what are essentially legendary penises. <laughs> <laughs> That's the room that Barney Stinson spends all of his time in. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Wait for it. Yeah, it sounds like an Icelandic last name, too. Stinson. Mm. Oh, there we go. True. Yeah, the committee would love that. <laughs> uh, okay, so a little bit of background info about the Icelandic Penis Museum. It was opened in 1997, and at first it had only 62 penis specimens. The founder, Sigurdor Hjardarsson... Uh, my my Icelandic accent is not as good as Noah's. Uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty thank good. Thank you. But Hjardarsson was gifted his first specimen, at penis specimen, just so we're clear. Uh, I'm going to try and see how many times I can say penis in this episode. <laughs> we're going to have a little counter. Yeah, please, like, please keep a count. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he was gifted his first penis specimen at the age of 33. At the time, he was working as a headmaster for a high school in some rural part of Iceland. Um, Do you- do you not consider him a headmaster if he's the head of a penis museum? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, well, sorry. I, oh, sorry. I love that it did not take long to devolve to that. Um, <laughs> We're going to be there for a while. Yeah. Knowing these guys. <laughs> so, um, he was More than you can say for most penises. <laughs> See? I'm sorry. I will stop now. <laughs> Please don't stop. Please don't. Um also not something you hear with most penises. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm serious. Okay. Back to seriousness. Um, so cool. he was working as a headmaster at the school where uh, the teachers would work as teachers during the school year, but in the summer they would work at whaling stations. Uh, and a couple of oh. the teachers at his school uh, gave him a whale penis as a joke one year, and he thought it was cool. So he was like, yeah, I'm going to try and collect more of these. <laughs> Um, And so sometime later, he opened up the Penis Museum. Now it has nearly 300 artifacts. Uh, And when I say artifact, I mean either it's a a full penis or it's a part of a penis. Uh, And so it has nearly 300 artifacts from 93 different species of animals, including humans. Uh, And there's actually a documentary called The Final Member from 2014 (laughs) that tells the story of how the museum acquired its first uh human penis specimen i haven't (laughs) watched it yet the final member (laughs) to grow where no man has grown before (laughs) (laughs) i haven't watched it yet but it is available on amazon and youtube and i will be watching it this weekend (laughs) um so all of the specimens that you can find in this museum were put there for like scientific scientific purposes so that people could study the field of philology, which is the study of penises. Uh, and so they have made a concerted effort to gather specimens from all of the land and sea mammals that can be found in Iceland. Uh, and they have pretty much succeeded. So that's exciting. Uh, they also have th- about 350 pieces of penis-related art and what they call practical utensils. I've been there... Um, they have they have bottle openers shaped like penises like uh, or like door handles shaped like penises they have lamp covers that the founder of the museum made himself from bull testicles there there's a lot of really great okay. stuff there so i thought you were going to say mm. made out of himself 
No. I'm very uh, glad to hear. No. Yeah, those really those thought... would be tiny lampshades. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought it was going to be the opposite, though. Like a bottle opener that was a penis. Like a, or a boculum. <laughs> yeah, or a just, yeah. yeah, you could definitely just carve a bottle opener. <laughs> as, a, as a side note, when I was doing this research, the, the museum's website has a counter to see how many people have visited the site that day or that month. And I was the 1,144th visitor at noon on a random Wednesday. So no amount of social distancing <laughs> is keeping this penis museum down. Wow. Which is impressive. That day nice. you were the 1,000, yes. whatever. Yeah, wow. that day. Nothing's keeping it down. Sorry, that That's, really yeah. took me a while. Yeah, I was like, nice. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. My yes. brain was working on that one for, <laughs> in the background. Thanks. I, I worked on that for a while. Um, <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> oh, we're children. Um, but, but the whole point of this fact is really that folklore room. Uh, and so in that room, there are 24 folklore specimens, which have little plaques with actual backstories and information about how the specimen was collected because it's a legit fucking museum like they they mean business um and so some of the specimens included are the kelpie which is um like a a water horse um with the description and i quote adult caught in the lake of katanis in southwest of iceland 1998 pretty tame uh but there's also uh, a merman penis which doesn't make much sense to me because that's the part of the mer- of the merman that's like fish. Should, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, what if fish that could be a merman cloaca? I guess or like. No, it's uh, it's a it's a penis. It's penis shaped. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a penis. Um, and so the the description for the merman penis is caught on a fishing line off the southwest coast in the late 18th century. Various things were made from the penis skin. <laughs> That's 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 the description. <laughs> Just I don't know so, what things, but things. But also not questioning that it's a merman penis. They're like, well, yeah. I mean, you know, you just well, you reel them so in sometimes, what, and then what do you got to do? Yeah. What, okay. what was caught on the fishing line? Uh, the whole merman, or just <laughs> the penis? Is that really came flopping? Came flopping out of the water. <laughs> ow, 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 ow. I like to think that it's the whole merman, but the fish hook was in the penis. Yeah. <laughs> oh God, it's so horrible. <laughs> think about it. I can't even envision the anatomy right now. I'm just picturing like a regular merman, sort of top human male, bottom part fish with just a human penis sticking out somewhere in the bottom half. Yes. And it's horrible. Yes, but the penis is green. Well, makes sense. It would right, be after that much time. <laughs> um, they they also have an Icelandic elf penis uh, with the description middle aged nineteen eighty nine, and it's important here to point out eighty nine nineteen eighty nine. That's when it was caught. Um, so Icelandic oh. elves are invisible. Uh, they also give Latin names to all of these folklore specimens, and oh, the Latin yeah. name for the Icelandic elf is Homo sapiens obscurus. It's the hidden man. Um, yeah. and, and so you can't actually see the specimen that floats in what they call uh, pure Arctic water. Huh. It's an empty, uh, it's a jar of water. There's, there's not an... They're, they're having fun. They're That's having fun. fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're having That's fun. Nice. The, the founder of this museum obviously has like a really zany personality, but it's not just a joke. Uh, this whole folklore room actually does tap into Icelanders' traditional beliefs, many of which are still held today. Uh, so there's this common factoid that goes around that like more than half of Iceland's population believes in elves. That's based on a poll from 1998 that said... 
uh, that found that 54% of Icelanders uh, claim to believe in elves. if you actually look at what that poll was asking, it's it's not great like survey work. Uh, the question was literally something like, do you believe in elves? And the only answers were yes or no. So there wasn't much room for nuance. Um, right. But if you dig deeper into Icelandic beliefs in magic and sorcery and folklore, uh, you will find that probably not many adults like wholeheartedly believe in magic and in elves, but many of them are probably hesitant to deny the existence of these creatures outright. And that's because it's so baked into the traditional beliefs of the country um, that they they have this view of like, better safe than sorry. Like, it's not going to hurt me if I say I believe in elves, but if they happen to be real and I don't believe in them, then I can be hurt. Like, that's dangerous. Yeah, it's like... Okay. It's like I'm I'm an atheist, but I'm not gonna be like, may God strike me down if he exists. Like, yeah, you know, there's always a little yeah <laughs> standard deviation or <laughs> error of the mean. I mean, for sure. Um, and the the belief in elves is sometimes uh, also used for environmental. Uh, missions um so when people try to develop land that uh for a long time has been left to nature like lava pools uh and lakes and and roads that lead through them uh a lot of the protesters who don't want that road to be built will say you can't build a road here elves live here and if you disrupt the elves they will do bad things to the humans who live around here so like don't do this um or is it is it implied that they'll do bad things to like the the like land developers and it's really just like the people that live around there being like yeah the elves are gonna fuck you up (laughs) i mm, that's a good question i don't know i i read that some of the reasons people give for why you can't develop roads in certain parts of iceland is because uh when elves are angered they will do things like kill your crops or your livestock or just like steal some things from you which is bad i see it doesn't specify who they'll steal from that's why the Iceland crime statistics are so low, is they just ascribe them all to elves. <laughs> we've we've cracked that mystery. I'm so excited. I, mean, I, I don't know how to feel about the fact that, like, if Smokey the Bear were an elf, people would take it more seriously. Like, like people are not content to be like, there's wildlife here and you should care about it. But they're like, there are malicious spirits that live in these woods. And if you cut down this tree, they're going to fuck with you. I feel like we do have an untouched potential with Smokey the Bear, though, because he is still ostensibly a bear. Like, he's very friendly, but he's a grizzly bear. And I think he shouldn't let us forget that. And then his messaging might be more effective. <laughs> you don't set be. my home on fire. I won't set your home on fire. Oh, wow. That's how Smokey works. <laughs> It's like hard Smokey the Bear. and it's... Yeah. Smokey is through with your shit. <laughs> That's a nice suburb you got there. It'd be a shame if something were to happen to it. <laughs> Might send my elves over. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, like, I like to imagine Santa as the head of a crack team of arsonists who take down people who don't respect the environment. <laughs> mm. <laughs> There's a story to be told here. For I sure. You're so. the one to tell it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Icelandic beliefs move just beyond elves. Uh, They also have a fascinating history with magic and witchcraft. And so the Icelandic word for magic is seidor, I think. It's S-E-I, and then that, like, curly D-looking thing. Oh, Uh, the hard Z. It's like a half D, half T-H kind of thing. So seidor, 
so men who practice magic were called sade men, uh, men of magical ritual, and women who practice magic were called visendacona, which means women of science. So thank you for that, Icelanders. <laughs> I'm, I'm so here for it. Yeah, uh, because if you go back far enough, magic was just a way of harnessing the powers of the natural world, uh, which we know as science, uh, but they've called it magic or religion or God's work for oh. thousands of years before we had the science to explain it. Um, for the most part, Icelandic sorcerers practiced white magic or good magic, and they would use them to help others or fix small problems around the house. A lot of magic had to do with farming uh, and and livestock and like collecting milk or making sure that milk didn't go bad, things like that. Uh, things that are important in a, a people who rely on farming. But not all of the Icelandic sorcerers practiced white magic. They're, they, they have a very notable uh, dark sorcerer called Galdra Loftor, who studied all of the forbidden texts. I don't know how he got his hands on them. They should have protected them better. But... Just like Doctor Strange. <laughs> <laughs> but even worse, um, he so he used this knowledge that he gained by studying the forbidden texts and did some scary shit with it. Um, he would practice sorcery on his house servants like on his chambermaid um and did some things that essentially are just torture uh and he tortured his chambermaid until he, she was driven mad uh, he he drove her mad um all in the name Ooh. of magic and then uh people caught on he was driven out of the town and uh he died by th being thrown off of a boat and the stories say that this dark hand just came out of the water and grabbed him and pulled him down. Wow. Yeah. One of the, the most notable and powerful of these dark rituals that uh, not just Loftor did, but other uh, sor dark sorcerers in Iceland would have done, was to produce the necropants, uh, <laughs> which is one of my favorite things about Icelandic magical rituals. Oh, my God. Uh, so the necropants are a source of never-ending wealth. Uh, and I'm going to tell you how you can make them. Uh, this I, I'm going to give a disclaimer. To the listeners, this is not me condoning these actions. Just This is me just providing information. What you do with it is on you, and I am not to be right. held responsible. <laughs> just, Nor is just being very clear, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Being very clear to absolve us of any responsibility of what she says. Um, if you do this, you will get rich, but you shouldn't. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's better than most pyramid schemes start, so I'm okay with it. <laughs> All right. So to make the necropants, a sorcerer has to make a pact with a friend. So at least there's consent involved. But you get uh, consent from your friend to uh, flay their body after your friend dies of natural causes. So you can't just murder your friend to make this happen. So it starts off pretty good. Uh, okay. Once your friend dies, you have their permission to flay their body from the waist down, but you have to do it seamlessly without creating any rips or tears, which is very difficult to do. Seems legit. <laughs> 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 um, all right. So once you've done this, you then have to put on the pants as if or put on uh, this skin as if it's a pair of pants and you have to steal a coin from a poor widow, oh, naturally. You steal a coin from a poor widow and you place that coin in your dead friend's scrotum that you're now wearing as pants. Mm -hmm. right. um, 
And if you also write a magical sigil on a piece of paper and place it in the scrotum with the coin, uh, your scrotum will uh, always be filled with coins. You will never, uh, <laughs> you'll never you have to work again. Guaranteed that by putting a coin in the scrotum. <laughs> but it'll, it'll. It, it's a, multiply. It's a, it, yeah, they'll multiply. It's okay. a never-ending source of coins. Um, no one ever talks about how awkward it must be to reach into this scrotum every time you have to buy something at the market. Or coin purse. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. this fleshy coin purse. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I just want to jump in quick to say, for fax machine's sake, that this is not even the first time this spring that we've talked about hiding things in false scrotums. <laughs> yeah, so, well, there's, there's some scrotal recall happening right now. <laughs> yes good show but, but um, this, this is by far scrotal recall that deserves really more. good i i will say if you take the necropants off your soul is doomed for all eternity <laughs> oh that's some fine print right there. <laughs> wow okay so you think. have to have them on forever forever I mean, and then, and uh. then you have to like they get passed down through families. So you would like pass them on to your children. And there's this weird ritual where like you take one leg off and they put one leg on, and then like each. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so there was a way to take them off before you. Or this is a dead person. The, right. This no. This is when you're still living, but you have to pass it on to another it's, person. It's time. Mm. To pass on your birthright. Okay. And you say, son, I'm just like everyone else. I take my necro pants off one leg at a time. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. There are other There are other just as ridiculous rituals uh, that involve what uh, Icelandic sorcerers called staves or these in like very intricate sigils or rune designs that they would draw on pieces of paper or other things um, and like sometimes say some words. And uh, would you um, play a game with me where I describe the ritual and you try to guess what it does? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> okay, great. I'll start start off simple. Um, so this one, you you inscribe this stave or this sigil on the scalp of a horse using a mixture of seal blood, fox blood, and human blood. And then you recite a poem uh, over the stave whenever you wish to use it. That was hair growth probably, right? Oh, I wish. If you go bald? For, for the horse, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because okay. like, <laughs> you, know, you want to do something nice for it. It's your main man. Okay, so it's... <laughs> It's human blood, fox blood, and horse blood? And seal blood. Oh, it's seal blood. Inscribed on a horse's scalp. Okay. Okay. And the horse is living. It's like a horse is just hanging out until you decide to actually recite the poem. They actually don't specify if the horse is living, so I don't know if it matters. Mm. But you would would theoretically use this multiple times. Yes, you can use it whenever you want. Okay. Is it okay. context dependent? It will either kill your horse or raise it from the dead. <laughs> oh, Noah, you're so close. Ooh. Oh. Does it allow you to look a gift horse in the mouth? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm... Does it prevent you from losing your voice <laughs> going horse? <laughs> Let's just keep going. I, was gonna, I have no idea. I was going to guess it was for when you wanted to receive mail, but based on Noah being. Cause, cause horses because horses presumably delivered mail. Yeah. <laughs> And you might need a seal to travel across waters and a fox so the mail is quick, like speedy delivery. But I love that you're that... looking for the logic in this. There is none. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but based on what you said to Noah, I'm going to guess it's when you want to kill one of your neighbors. 
Oh, very close. It is when you want to uh, raise the dead. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Ah, casual. Or exercise a spirit or put a ghost to rest. Oh. Yeah. This is multi multi purpose. Yeah. 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 Seems like a great investment. Efficient. Yeah, I like that. The Swiss Army knife of of (laughs) enchantments. I'll do do one more. Uh, This one is a lot more complicated. Okay. All right. (laughs) Because we were really good at the first one that you called easy, by the way. I called the ritual simple. Uh, Are you calling us simple? (laughs) Or did I just call us simple? I think you just called yourself simple. All right. right, So this next one. The stave has to be drawn on a calfskin that has never been out under the bare sky. The ink that you use uh, is, is made with water from within a raven's eye and the blood from the heart of a man and woman who have loved each other with all their hearts but have never consummated their love. <laughs> you, also ha- <laughs> you also have to draw this, this sigil with a water rails feather. And then you have okay. to uh, sprinkle myrrh over the entire sigil. When it's dry, you have to go to a spring whose temperature remains constant winter and summer, and over which no bird has flown that day. And then you hit the water with this sigil, um, with the the rune facing downward. And then which is on the on a calf, like it's on still a, on the calf. It's on calf skin, calf so you skin. remove skin. the skin. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And then you circle the spring four times counterclockwise. You take the sigil from the water and you peek through it. Oh, to see your future. Exactly. (laughs) It's got to be what it is. You can. So this ritual will allow you to see uh, into the future or past throughout the world and throughout time. So it's not even just limited to your future. Wow. Oh, I love that. Okay, well, let's let's start by saying it definitely doesn't. So I feel like I feel like the reason this is so complicated is that like they were like, oh, let's say Icelandic Moya, you are a like woman of science. Vicendicona. Is there any? What was it? Vicendicona. <laughs> Vicendicona. Is there any way that I could like look through time and space? And you're like. Yes, but only if you do this ridiculously precise series of things meticulously correctly. And if you don't get it right, I'll be like, ah, well, you messed it up. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. like you're hitting the nail on the head here. That's exactly why magical rituals are so complex, uh, because it can it then allows the whole community to preserve their belief in magic. Because if something doesn't go the way you expect it to, it's because you did it wrong and not because magic doesn't exist. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Um, so I'll wrap this up to say that the glory days of Icelandic sorcery ended in the 1600s during what the Icelanders call the Age of Fire, which is when all of the witch hunts were happening in Iceland. Uh, more than 200 people were officially charged with practicing sorcery or possessing dangerous magical artifacts, which I will note could include an oddly shaped pebble. That's, dare. that's cause enough to be burned as a witch. A lot of rivers were convicted of witchcraft. (laughs) Yes. Um, But all of this information about these rituals and other facets of Iceland's uh, magical history are kept safe in the Museum of Sorcery and Witchcraft high up in the West Fjords of Iceland. I've been there. It's beautiful. It's in this tiny little village called Holmavik. I highly recommend going there. Uh, But there are also parts of Iceland where these pagan uh, beliefs are, are 
still held today. And so you can go to some farms in Iceland and practice these ancient pagan rituals uh, and learn more about the culture there. Um, wow. When coronavirus is over, I might just <laughs> abandon my life and go become an Icelandic pagan <laughs> somewhere <laughs> in like the West Fjords. Well, we discussed it. We want to come with you yeah. and start our cult. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you, Moya. Uh, all that leaves for us now is our quiz. And so um, first, I just have to tell you guys how hard it was to kind of figure out what this quiz should be. Um, and so I looked up a lot of facts about Iceland. I was afraid that we would talk about them. Uh, so some of them we did, some of them we, we didn't. Um, and so let me tell you what's not going to be in the quiz. Um, the fact that there was something called the Cod Wars in the 1970s that Iceland engaged in with Great Britain, uh, <laughs> which is worth the Wikipedia look. It's, it's very fun. Also, we won't talk about the fact that Iceland is the world's 18th largest island and the second largest in Europe, but it is. Um, and we won't talk about Grzotagja, uh, which is a geothermal cave, which is where Jon Snow and Ygritte consummated their love. Um, they could not be used which... in that magical ritual. Yeah. Oh yes, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, sorry, they're they're out. <laughs> but instead, here here's what I've done. So I I've gone and I've caved to those, you know, pop culture heretics that want you to watch movies. <laughs> and I've taken eight famous movie quotes, but I have substituted essential and key words in them with their Icelandic translations. <laughs> oh. so, so for instance okay. if I said frankly my Kayuri I don't give a fjandin. <laughs> Dear damn, right? Yes. yes. And so you would need to tell me the movie that that's from. Is that like Gone with the Wind? Gone with the Wind. It's Gone yeah. with the Wind, yeah. Scarlett O'Hara. <laughs> yep. I, don't, I haven't seen it. <laughs> 1939, considered the most iconic movie quote of all time by many different ranking lists. Um, so that's what we're dealing with. Um, okay. So four of the movies are going to be from the list of like a hundred of the most famous movie quotes ever. So hopefully they're very recognizable, even with the Icelandic four of the movies will have happened to have scenes filmed in Iceland, which is very like nice, but also means that they may not be the most recognizable (laughs) movie quotes. Um, So that's, that's our difficulty scaling for this quiz. Cool. Um, I spent some time on the Google translate, pronunciation function to prepare myself um any icelandic listeners i hope that you just laugh like (laughs) that's all i've got for you it won't be great um okay so question number one of our and again it's not all in icelandic because that's impossible uh but that was my first thought um so it's just key words that have been translated in what i think is the proper (laughs) conjugation declension in the way that they would be used if you were speaking icelandic you just learned a whole new language to make this quiz I certainly did not. <laughs> but I, I now know at least a little bit of the difference between like a present participle and like a noun form of the same verb, um, which we'll get to. Good for you. Yeah, it's nice. it's completely not repeatable. I just like typed different things into Google Translate and I kept seeing the pattern that came up and I picked what seemed like the most appropriate one. Um, we'll see. Yeah, yeah when, when we get a lot of Icelandic hate mail. <laughs> we won't be able to read it, though, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> but all right. Question number one in our partially translated movie quotes quiz. Here's Horfa Au You, Cracky. Looking? looking at you, kid. 
Nice. And the movie? Is that Casablanca? That one is Casablanca. (laughs) I will say that um, movies that have filmed in Iceland are blockbusters. There are very famous movies. So you'll know the movie for sure. Okay. Um, But we'll we'll see. Yeah. Cool. Um, Okay. Yeah. And actually, so I said Kraki. It could be Kraftji. I'm not really sure on that pronunciation. Um, Because two Ks in a row, I think the rules change in Icelandic. But I, you know didn't get there that's that's for someone else to solve all right okay this second one it was really hard to to translate word for word so two words in english became four words in icelandic that's my hint for you okay number two just haltu afram au sinda so it's just and then it's two english words Yes. The only thing I can think of is just do it. But that. Yes. So this is a 2003 movie. It's a more more recent quote. It is an animated movie. And the the one that is closest, I think, of all. Just keep swimming. Yes. Finding Nemo. Yep. So so it's the opposite of halt. Yes. (laughs) Just continue to swim. Yes. And that's actually when I type continue swimming into google translate i got the same thing so i oh good okay actually what it means but good uh yeah so sund is swim and sinda means swimming so i learned something about icelandic (laughs) yeah yeah so that's cool uh but just keep swimming very nice okay okay this one i'm very excited about um question number three i have gear vurtur greg could you majolkau me i know it (laughs) Do y'all want to take a crack at it? Noah, can you say the quote and I can, I'll can? i try and guess the movie? I, I have nipples, Greg. Can you milk me? <laughs> is it like, I love you, man, or something? Uh, well, let me say, it is one of the greatest actors of all time saying those words, Robert De Niro. <laughs> yeah. It, and it seems like a very strange thing for him to say. <laughs> oh, uh, is it like Meet the Parents? Or yes. One of those, or? Yeah. The original okay. Meet the Parents movie. Huh. All right. Question number four. Um, this question is only four words. Two of them are now in Icelandic. Uh, so there might be a little challenge, but we'll see. So question number four is, Sindu me the Peningana. <laughs> you know what this reminds me of is uh, Moya's book right at the beginning. <laughs> where There's a lot of basically the person who wakes up. Like doesn't quite understand the language that the aliens are like speaking to them, and so like gradually gibberish words start being inter- interspersed with normal words. That's what that sounded like. Yeah, <laughs> it's here. Actually, here's a just to be clear. I actually have it up here. It goes uchuga siadun off waking up geheb nugget gather korba de comfortable. That's what you sound like. <laughs> I told you we weren't leaving Earth, but we're in an alien world now. <laughs> that is that is from chapter one of Lying Hordes by Maury McTeer. <laughs> if I ever make Sorry, an audio book, again, I'll Ra. have you narrate it. Please. <laughs> I'll do all the voices. Alright, Rob, hit me again with that name. Yeah, so that word that phrase. Sounds like you guys didn't grok this one. Um <laughs> yeah. Ooh, clue. <laughs> Uh, well, um, <laughs> question number four again. Sindu me the peninjana. Give me the money or something like that. Show me no. the show, money. Show, show me, me the money. money. Yes, exactly. That was purely is... based on your tone. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this sounds. I tried, I tried to Tom Cruise it a little bit there. <laughs> nice. So that was question four. So I'll tell you right up front Casablanca 
Finding Nemo, Meet the Parents, and Jerry Maguire, none of them had any fil- any scenes filmed in Iceland. So you've got a straight four of the final four that are going to have Icelandic influence. Okay. Okay. So question number five. I'm going to get the accent wrong, too. You see, Mr. Bond, you can't drip it, drama mina, but drama mina can drip it you. <laughs> I don't know the Bond films very well. Okay. Yeah. So, is, is there a is there a Goldfinger? Is that is a Bond film. Okay. So this one really lies heavily on the Icelandic landscape to the point where it actually takes place um, in an ice hotel. Oh no, I don't know. Okay. So <laughs> I can I can give you the full English tra- translation. Um, okay. Which is a, maybe a little hint for the movie, but it's. Um, Mr. Bond, you can't kill my dreams, but my dreams can kill you. Hmm. Is there and sleep in the title? No. Oh. Okay. Well, I don't know. All right. I, I, I have up. no idea. So, <laughs> yeah. so this is Die Another Day. I don't, I'm so bad at, like, <laughs> Bond. I've never, like, Bond movies come up in trivia, and I've never thought, oh, I should just watch them. They're on Hulu. And I mean, like, you don't. I need to. You don't have to watch them. You can do what I do and like read the Wikipedia page and then be good for trivia. Um, this one I did see when I was a kid because it was 2002, and then it came like it was like the Sunday night movie one week in like 2004. Um, okay, question number six. Um, I can give you. There are a series of hints for this one. Partially filmed in Iceland. Um, come on, you're just an ordinary mauer in a kapu. <laughs> And dang, and both of the words filmed in Iceland. Part of it, not not most of it, but there's a a part that's uh, filmed in Iceland. And the reason is this is a backstory movie, so it tells you a little bit about where a character comes from, mm. and he is an ordinary mower in a kapu, which are actually the closest thing to homophones that we're gonna get. The hint I'll give you is right before they say "come on," they say, "Bruce, come on, you're just an ordinary mower in a kapu." Well, it's clearly so... a Batman-related movie. Batman okay. Returns? Begins? Begins. Batman Begins. Okay. Uh, okay. So that was the first of the Christian Backstory. Bale Batman. Hmm. Yeah. And it's Got you're it. just an ordinary man in a cape. Mauer. Yeah. Kapu. Yep. Okay. Okay. It's easy once right. you know the answer. <laughs> yeah. Now my... I feel like I could answer that. Yeah. Okay. Number seven. This one has um, words that sound nothing like their English counterparts. Um, I've replaced three of them and it's a fairly long quote but there's enough i think tie in that if you know this like it'll be it'll be easier and it's supposed to be said in a somewhat like inquisitive or like are you serious kind of tone which i hope that i can deliver in icelandic okay okay so this is the game skip that made the kessel hop in fort john parsecs (laughs) (laughs) so it's a star wars thing Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait, so you said this at the beginning. Yeah. And that makes me think that it's not one of the originals because that is not how they talk about it. That's actually I think I think what Han Solo says in A New Hope is she's the ship that made the castle right. Like so it wouldn't be like this. Yeah. I think that's Ray finding the Millennium Falcon in uh the first of the new ones. Yes, that's I don't remember what it's called. Exactly right. Um anyone with the Star Wars subtitle? <laughs> what is it called? What's the name? So this is 2015 Star Wars The Force Awakens. Yeah, there you go. Nice. Uh and so exactly like Noah described, um Ray gets on the ship and she looks around and she's like, "This piece of shit." This is the Gaimskip that made the Kessel Hop. Also, I should say it's spelled H L A U P. That's run, like 
a run, going mm. for a run. Um, question number eight, I like this quote. I think it's a really obscure quote. Um, I don't totally expect us to get it, but I think that the quote is worth ending on. And so this this is a, uh, a movie that has a cult following, and I'll explain why as some of the hints. Um, but the quote is, the line between our Godsenger and our Sanulkan is fragile and blurry. Is that like prayers? Godsenger? It's similar. Oh, saints and sinners? Is that what it is? Ooh, ooh, that's, I like that as an idea. Um, but, but That's the <laughs> nicest way you could say that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I like what you said as an idea. <laughs> Definitely not as the answer to my question. But... <laughs> But um, it good and evil. Like so it's it's not good and evil. It so God Sanger I think has something to do with the gods. Mm-hmm. Maybe not like primary religious, but but like the the idea of um, supernatural powers, and then uh, Sanlikan. I think there's no chance of getting. Oh yeah, great. But, <laughs> but so something that would be the opposite of like the the God Sanger. Um, Can you say the whole quote again? Yeah. The line between our Godsanger and our Sanalkan is fragile and blurry. And this was a 2001 movie that has a cult following. Um, and it is uh, the most w- recognizable female protagonist of an action movie of all time. Kill Bill? Kill Bill? No, actually. <laughs> um, but mm. <laughs> clearly here it is. That, that's the case. <laughs> The the structure of the title is the female protagonist's name, colon, her profession. Laura Croft, oh, Tomb Raider? Yeah. Yes, okay. Laura Croft, ah. Tomb Raider. Nice. Um, who has become a huge internet sensation. Um, if you go to Comic-Con, you will see many Lara Crofts um, and has been voted the most recognizable and the most popular female protagonist of action movies. Hmm. Um, the, the quote is, the line between our myths and truth is fragile and blurry. Oh, cool. Myths? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I think yeah. I didn't get myths. <laughs> I mean, God Sanger. Um, yeah. So I, I see, I can see, maybe see the etymology. I can imagine myself to the etymology. Mm. Um, but I think it's like a really neat um, quote for a folklorist episode of Facts Machine. <laughs> yeah, it would have been great if. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> After this, I'm just going to go and learn how to say myth in every language around the world. Yeah. Smart. Never get yeah, caught right. flat-footed again. No, no. <laughs> fool me once. Shame on me. All right, but that's it. Fool me twice. There's some sort of Greek god mischief going on here. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our show. Thanks everyone for listening, Moya. It was wonderful to have you on a guest this episode. Um, it was great to get to talk about Iceland and folklore, and we hope that you'll join us again. It was great to be here. I've been listening to your show for so long that I am excited to finally be a guest. Uh, and thank you for letting me come on and talk about things that don't happen in space. That was <laughs> a new, exciting <laughs> experience. Uh, you talked about Exolore, so thank you for that. Uh, yeah, I'd really love to help more people imagine fictional worlds. So go over to Exolore wherever you get your podcasts and check it out. That's E-X-O-L-O-R-E. If you want to follow what I'm doing, uh, in case I remember suddenly what I have going on, uh, (laughs) you can follow me on Twitter uh, where I post all of my things. And that's uh, Go Astromo. Uh, And from a fax machine point of view, fans, you can buy tickets for our July 1st live stream show with neuroscientist and story collider producer Dr. Paula Croxon now on our website and at caveat.nyc. 
Um, you can always check out the Fax Machine website, faxmachinepodcast.com, and our Instagram and Twitter, at faxmachinepod, as well as Facebook, uh, the Fax Machine Podcast. And if you'd like to follow us, I'm Sweatervest SCI, Noah, at Arcs and Sciences, and Emily, at underscore E.M. Costa. Fax Machine is produced by Rob Frawley, Noah Guyverson, and Emily Costa, with editing by Noah Guyverson. Our theme music is by Anthony Antonelli, and our logo was designed by Mike Zola. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.